Okay, Moya. Hello. Thank you very much, Moya, for, for coming on the show today. Uh, really excited to speak with you. Uh, I think it's awesome what you're working on, and uh, I'm just looking forward to, to talking through all of it. Uh, so first and foremost, you are the co-founder of Frontier Capital Partners, uh, co-founder and CEO of Tebe Investment Management, a Zambian private investment firm, uh, and notably you're developing Nkwashi, which is a new city privately built uh, in Zambia. Uh, that and a bunch more, you're working on a ton of projects, which I look forward to, uh, to discussing here today. But uh, first and foremost, would love to hear kind of your background from growing up uh, in Zambia all the way through deciding to uh, start on these ventures. Cool. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so I, I guess speaking to your question, um, yeah, I was born in Zambia, uh, principally raised here, um, spent two years in Swaziland also, um, and I went to university in the UK. Um, so, you know, my, my upbringing was fairly normal. Um, my, my mom was a farmer. And my father was a, uh, is an economist. Um, and, and so um, I, I guess by global standards, it was a fairly sort of like um, middle income experience. Um, but for, for Zambia, because it's a very different context, it was, a, I guess, a somewhat sort of like privileged experience. Um, so I, I went to, to school here. Um, for both my primary school and my secondary school. Um, and, and then studied finance for my BA um, and then did a master's in international business, um, uh, principally focused around VC and private equity. Um, then I, I basically worked in the UK for another year, um, found the startup, we, we raised some angel money, uh, about 30K. Unfortunately, the project that we had founded didn't pan out the way we wanted to, we weren't able to raise any more uh, follow-on capital. So um, we had to sort of like shutter that project. And then I, I came back to Zambia. Um, I started working here as an analyst, um, did that for two years, and, and then founded uh, Tebe, um, which is building in Kwashi. Um, so whilst as an analyst, I largely covered real estate and local equities. Um, with some sort of like other asset classes in between those two, like fixed income, for example. So it was a very generalist role, um, but it gave me a really good sort of like high level bird's eye view understanding of what was happening in Zambia, what the trends were in real estate, what the demographic issues were uh, and where the opportunities sat. Um, and so I used a lot of that learning to then inform a lot of what we're doing now um, around the idea of sort of building a new city. So you mentioned the way that you grew up uh, was relatively fortunate given where you grew up, but in a normal, you know, in, in like a normal United States city or something like that would be considered more of a, a middle income situation. Um, having been fortunate in your upbringing and being able to go and get your education in the UK uh, and work for a year out there, a lot of people, and I'm kind of making an assumption here, you tell me, but people from... Africa generally or Zambia specifically and the types of people you grew up with who might have been a little bit more fortunate locally uh, may have been tempted to kind of leave Africa, leave Zambia and take advantage of these opportunities abroad and kind of never look back or, or only go back to visit and, and things like that. You've taken kind of the polar opposite view 
where you came back to Zambia and not only that, but your entire life's mission is basically to build Africa back up and, uh, you know, gain parity with the rest of the world and really advance the culture and society within Africa. What do you think drove you to care so deeply about Africa and, and come back to uh, help advance it as a society? Um, so I think a lot of it has to do with my upbringing. Um, and so uh, being an economist's kid, you sort of grew up around conversations that relate to your country's economy and the rest of Africa's economy and all, all the potential that exists here um, and everything that could potentially be done to improve things. Uh, and you also get exposed to all of the frustrations um, regarding why things don't work. So, you know, I'll, I'll constantly be hearing these conversations between my, my dad and his friends uh, who are also largely economists. And, um, you know, it, it sort of like informed a lot of how I saw the world. Uh, and then on the flip side, you know, with my mom being a farmer, um, whilst, you know, we, we weren't very affluent by, by Zambian or even uh, international standards, we're pretty well off. Uh, so she, she ran a pretty successful commercial dairy and poultry farm. Um, and so, you know, at some point, both her and my, my dad started exploring ways that could um, use the surplus earnings from their farming venture. Um, so like, I guess, expand their balance sheet. And so they started acquiring uh, land. Um, and so the land that Nkwashi now sits on um, was the consequence of that farming venture. So it was originally purposed uh, to be a, a ranch. So they already had a dairy um, operation and they wanted to add to that a, a beef ranching operation and, and also a, a coffee plantation. So they could sort of like um, manage their, I guess, the currency portfolio within the context of generating a USD from coffee, which is a cash crop, which is sold internationally. Whereas everything else that we're doing in the ag space um, was completely focused on sort of servicing local um, demand for food. And, and so, um, you know, I, I grew up seeing them do all these things. Um, and so at the back of my mind, in as much as I, you know, I went to the UK, I also entertained the idea of staying there permanently. Um, but, you know, I, I also felt very much like the competitive advantages I had didn't really translate in the UK in the sense that um, I didn't have any assets there, right? And, and so, whereas in Zambia, there was some assets that existed that I could hopefully come back to and then help expand further. Um, and I, I didn't know exactly what that looked like at the time, but I, I knew I wanted to uh, be involved in that story. Um, so I, I, I guess that's what informed my decision um, to, to come back. Um, also, I, you know, those the fact that the stuff that I had started uh, didn't play out the way I expected. So had we actually succeeded in, in building a startup, there's a good chance that I might not have come back. Um, but, you know, it was this, I guess, duality between those two experiences. Like, I, I want to be doing this cool uh, tech stuff that I was involved in. At the time, I was like 2021. 20, but on the, on the back end, there's also, I guess, this, um, I guess, responsibility I, I, I knew I had. That's a great explanation. It makes a lot of sense. I think 
Uh, a lot of times with really successful people, you see uh, how early failures kind of drove them to what ultimately, the, you know, the area that they ultimately succeeded in. And um, I'm not sure, and you could talk about it a little bit if you'd like, I'm not sure the startup you were working on uh, in the UK, but I somewhat doubt it was ambitious as what you're doing now uh, in Zambia and, and in Africa at large. Uh, and I could see that failure uh, with the startup pushing you to, to come back home and take advantage of the assets that you had and, and namely the land and, and have this master plan that you're working on now uh, certainly seems like it, it was worthwhile and, and hopefully you'll be able to reflect on it that way. Is that kind of the way that you think about it now already? Yeah, yeah I, I think that's um, you know, everything that a person goes through in their life can either so like break them or alternatively help inform how they make decisions thereafter, um, you know, in a very positive way. Um, and so I, I chose the latter, though it was painful at the time. Um, you know, I, I chose to just reset um, and, and reflect. Uh, and so, you know, that's still the same ethos I have today. So, you know, mistakes will be made, but you just have to um, use those as moments to, to reflect. So let's talk about what has driven you to the mission that you're on now and seemingly for, for the rest of your life. Um, you had these assets from the farming business that you mentioned and this land that could be utilized in potentially another way. Uh, and you also saw the population growth forecasted in Africa, uh, Zambia specifically, but Africa at large, where uh, right now I, I believe Africa has about 1.4 billion people and that's projected to double to about 3 billion by 2050 and then double again potentially by the end of the century. Uh, my understanding is that you kind of saw this and figured, um, you know, very reasonably that there's going to need to be a lot of cities built. Africa is already kind of behind on having enough cities and, and employment within those cities to give people, um, you know, good living and good employment. Uh, and so you wanted to kind of step in and make a difference in that future. Um, I, I read your, your master plan, which is, which is brilliant and really inspiring. Uh, would you care to kind of walk people through uh, how you think about this master plan? Um, yeah, so I think you've spoken to, I guess, the, the high level trends, which informing yes. so there's a lot of population growth that's happening um and there's already a lot of population growth that's been happening so zambia as an example where i'm from had a population of give or take three million people um in 1964 when it got its independence from um from the uk uh, and it's now almost 20 million people so you know that's massive amounts of population growth and you know that's happened in a context where you also had AIDS, you know, you've had um, pretty low uh, health um, standards and quality throughout that period. And yes, things have been improving. Uh, AIDS issue is significantly uh, less um, of a problem today than it was, say, 30 years ago. Uh, but the fact that those things didn't derail, uh, materially derail the population growth, I think, says a lot um, about the the amount of inertia behind these these trends 
Um, and, and so the thing is to the extent that these trends play out and economic growth doesn't grow at a disproportionately higher um, you know, level, what we'll end up with is a lot of people sharing poverty, right? And that's not good for geopolitical stability, it's, it's not good for health and education outcomes or human development outcomes. Um, it's not good for the rest of the world because Africa will be almost 40% of the global population. Uh, and, and so the question is how do you uh, participate in the enhancement of um, African society so that we can avoid all these sort of like adverse outcomes that come from like mediocre economic growth. Um, and you can either just like go long on traditional institutions and, and sort of like, I guess, norms, or you could say, well, you know, those are all great and good and, you know, we support all of that, but the private sector needs to take on a significantly stronger role in helping shape the, the future. Uh, and that's the view, you know, me and colleagues have taken, which is that we, we need to be much more invested in shaping the type of outcome that we want. Um, and so we, we think building new cities is a good way to do that because it provides for all the uh, sort of like hard infrastructure that people need. So people need homes, people need streets, uh, people need infrastructure. Um, people also need social institutions like affordable schools, they need affordable healthcare. And so we're thinking a lot about these issues. And so as an example, we um, recently launched Explorer School, which is an online only school, which is full time. Um, from grades one through to 12. Um, and it's, you know, it's an international school standard uh, curricula that we're teaching off. Uh, we have just a little under 100 students in that. So it's, it's growing at an okay pace, but the, the cost per student that we're charging parents is something like, um, like $25 a month through to about $50 a month. Um, which is significantly cheaper than the next alternative that we we'll have, which at least private alternative, which would cost uh, almost three times more um, for significantly lower quality. So that's an example of us saying, okay, you know, what's the closest to near free education that we could provide our residents um, that pretty much all of them can afford. Um, and so we're building all these social institutions and these uh, physical goods, uh, physical public goods as well. Um, uh, as, a, as a means of trying to address these broader problems. And then ultimately what we'd like to do is actually just build a, a completely new sort of like uh, labor market and, and financial system that is much more open uh, and, and globalized than what we currently have. So we can get a lot more people employed locally by working for global employers or enable global capital to invest in local startups and then enable local startups to export their, their goods or services to the rest of the world so that um, these cities aren't completely dependent on their host country's economic well-being. Um, they can be economies unto themselves, um, which we hope then um, becomes a flywheel that enables these, these private cities to just keep growing and, and being more uh, effective at uh, enabling economic growth. So I definitely want to talk more about Explorer School and Nkwashi, the city that you're building. Um, but the way that you've kind of set this up, my understanding is that 
there's kind of a larger vision uh, and the backbone to that vision is this new economic model almost. Um, and I believe you're calling that Taji. Is that correct? Yep. So I read the black paper uh, on Taji. Super interesting. Uh, awesome people involved at, at both writing the paper and, and the advisors. Um, could you talk a bit, you know, I'd like to kind of start with Taji if it makes sense and then get into how Nkwashi is the first city to kind of show a proof of concept for this model and then how like Explorer School is building kind of the educational backbone and kind of starting from 10,000 feet out and zooming in to how you're beginning to actually build the infrastructure. Yeah, so, so um, one of the things that has been very apparent to us over the last uh, several years is that um, building a new city is, is straight, you know, is, is difficult for a lot of reasons, but principally because it's expensive. Um, and so we, we built a model from Huashi, which is largely, largely self-funding. Um, so people sort of like pay us um, for the residential lots um, on amortized plans, and we use those cash flows to just um, build out build out the city. Um, but not everybody's in that position. And in order for us to achieve our vision, we, we need more cities being developed across Africa by way more people. Um, and that means we need to solve the financing problem both for them as well as for their city residents, both individuals and businesses. So um, people need to have access to capital. And so the existing financial system uh, in Zambia or across much of Africa doesn't really um, allow for that because you've got four small small countries each with their own little economic systems, right? And whilst you can sort of like put the front off on Africa, particularly in West Africa, um, as a you, know, you could consider it a single economy because they all use the same currency. Um, there'll be nuances in regulation and all sorts of things across these different countries which act as friction points. And so what we're trying to do is to the furthest extent possible, um, of like eliminate those friction points and enable these cities that could potentially exist across Africa to operate as a single entity. Um, and, and so we think uh, blockchain is really effective at doing that. So, you know, Ethereum and Bitcoin are all global currencies, right? They're global first. Um, and so we're trying to sort of like use that way of seeing the world to inform what could be done here in Africa to enable new cities to be developed. And so the idea behind is principally to enable new cities um, and the economic ecosystem within the cities to thrive um, by allowing people who are surplus holders of capital uh, across the world um, to finance people who are deficit users of this capital uh, and therefore allow for uh, capital movement. So people who are building new businesses, people who are building infrastructure, people who are building their homes uh, or buying homes could then issue securities um, on, on this uh, blockchain that would enable them to have access to the capital that they need. Um, further, because they'll be living in and operating in these uh, cities where this currency is accepted by everybody, uh, it means that they could actually accept salaries in this uh, in this coin. And, um, landlords could accept this coin as, as payment for rents or uh, you know 
banks would accept this as a as a as a means of paying for liabilities, um, and, and and so you you sort of actually create a a, a true financial system in that sense. So would it be fair to say that that you're to some degree looking to build this new African economy in the digital world where it'll be a lot less, you know, it'll, it'll be a lot harder for uh, countries themselves to interfere with the economic actions of, of people on this blockchain um, using this currency. And secondarily, it'll be a lot easier for people to choose to enter this economy of sorts because you don't have to necessarily move anywhere. You could obviously, uh, things might be easier if you move to an Nkwashi, uh, where potentially Taji is uh, a much more accepted currency in, in the physical world. But um, if you are, for example, like a software engineer uh, working for a, a more international company, this enables you to get paid in a currency from wherever you might be in Africa and bring some of that value back to the local economy. Yeah, that's, that's basically part of the other thinking there. And, you know, unlike say, like uh, uh, several um, existing blockchain projects, um, we're not necessarily thinking that this would be a completely market-driven pricing for the currency. Um, so it'd be more of a stable coin than a, a true cryptocurrency in that sense. Um, and the reason is you, you need to have a, a healthy level of stability to enable people to actually trust, uh, you know, that this coin will have the same value today that it had tomorrow uh, when settling goods, uh, service, you know, when settling payments for goods and services. Uh, if that's not the case, it reduces incentive for people to buy. And, and so that then also informs a second thing, which is that you need to actually build a real economy in these cities, right? So that your stable coin isn't, um, isn't tethered to just one currency, but rather a basket of currencies, similar to say how the Hong Kong dollar or the Singapore dollar function. So if you are an export-oriented economy, you, you want to make sure that your currency achieves some level of stability relative to your trade partners, and that also prevents you from creating inflation um, or deflation in your own market um, because your currency is, you know, in a very real sense, uh, an expression of your trade relationships, um, which cities have to by default because you're going to be importing a lot of food and things of that sort from your immediate uh, neighbor, right, which is going to be your host country. Um, but you'll also be selling goods and services to uh, counterparties in other countries within the broader region or the rest of the world. And so you have to achieve a level of stability across all these different stakeholder relationships that you have. That makes sense. Uh, you've mentioned a few times now the importance of having an export-led economy. Um, can you talk a bit about why that's your view and how uh, Asia, in a way, has led uh, or has demonstrated that model in the way that they've kind of gained parity with the rest of the world in terms of their economy? Yeah, so uh, I think a lot of the answer lies in your, um, you know, your, your comments at the end there, which is, what's the fastest way to develop the economy? Right? If your immediate neighbors are largely 
in the same state as you, i.e. poor, trading with them, whilst beneficial will only have, uh, will have limited potential uh, uplift gains for you. So if you want to have, if you want to maximize the potential upside that you could achieve from trade, you want to make sure that you're trading with people with the greatest amount of disposable income or, or uh, trade demand for whatever it is that your country is good at doing. Um, and, and so trading with, with larger economies, both in the region and across the world, enables that because um, it facilitates for larger flows of, of credits. Uh, and I think that's been demonstrated with likes of Hong Kong, Taiwan, uh, China, um, South Korea, uh, Japan, and many others. Um, you know, it allows that leapfrogging to take place. Um, and so our view is that within the context of building um, this new economy, um, the fastest way to achieve that accelerated level of economic growth is to really go hard on um, exporting goods and services which are globally demanded. Uh, so this is a slight change of topic just for a moment. I'd like to, I, I kind of glossed over when you mentioned uh, how, you know, Taji is, is in some respects following the example of, of Bitcoin and Ethereum and focused more so on providing a stable coin. But how have Bitcoin and Ethereum uh, been received thus far in, in Africa or, or in Zambia specifically? Um, how have these technologies uh, been used by people or leveraged by people. I know in the States, uh, a lot of people are obviously working on Ethereum applications. Um, Bitcoin is popular to some degree, uh, extremely early still from other people's point of view uh, and is mostly being uh, treated as, as kind of a speculative asset that, that I personally am very bullish on. How do people in Africa engage with these early leading cryptocurrencies? Um, so from what I've seen in, in Africa, Bitcoin is still the sort of like, I guess the, the market leader. Uh, and a lot of the use cases seem to be related to um, transfers of, of credits from one location in the world to another. So like really low cost transfers of money from country A to country B, um, so that you know, um, various types of, uh, I guess, use cases can be settled. So one is remittances, the other is trade-related settlements. So people who are traders in, say, uh, Nigeria and are importing something from China uh, and don't want to use the banks because it's expensive and slow, will just send Bitcoin um, to the person on the other side. Um, and then the person will just ship the physical good. Um, so on both sides, they, they close out the trades into whatever the local currencies are um, pretty quickly to, you know, to avoid FX-related um, dislocations relative to what it is that they're trying to commercially do. Um, so a lot of the use of, of crypto at the moment seems to be that peer-to-peer uh, -peer movement of money. That's interesting. Uh, in, in the U.S., a lot of people observe that that's, uh, at least as far as I'm familiar, people observe that that's a great use case for it. Uh, but in the U.S., there's a lot less need for that uh, you know, remittance example, uh, for instance. 
And so it's, it's interesting to hear that, that people in Africa are already um, exhibiting this use case. And I think for people in the U.S., people who are less familiar still view Bitcoin as like, uh, you know, they, they just don't believe it's real, uh, I think, fundamentally. Uh, and to hear that it's being used very practically in like real economic trade uh, abroad is, is interesting um, for, for me to hear. So going back to Taji, uh, obviously this is an extremely ambitious uh, goal and not one that's out of reach, but one that's going to take a lot of work over a lot of time. And, um, you know, one person can't do it by themselves. So I understand you have a great team uh, that you've built around you and some really notable advisors as well. I uh, would like to take a second to, to speak about some of those advisors. So I think you have Vitalik uh, Buterin on board, who, who's been on the podcast previously, uh, Balaji Srinivasan, uh, Joe Lonsdale. Have some of these advisors helped you shape uh, the, the vision for Taji and your master plan overall? Yes, uh, I guess there's a minor correction that Joe's an advisor um, at Explore Academy and Explore School, but not on Taji. Um, but Vitalik and Balaji are advisors in basically all these different projects. Um, I, I think, you know, speaking specifically in this instance to Balaji and uh, Vitalik, they've been very helpful in, in framing these issues uh, within the context of what's practical, right? And how to sort of like how to execute so like what steps do you take when um, and how do you build up a community so these are things that you know they've done um, in particular that Vitalik has done and so I think he's able to sort of like relay his experiences um, and say yeah this worked this didn't work uh, um, you know in my experience the best way to tackle this problem is like this and so that then informs some of the the thinking we've we've had uh, regarding how to to roll this out, um, and then just more generally, you know, we've been pretty slow um, to get this done, um, and, and that's largely because you know I, I, I favor caution. Um, there's there's a lot that I don't know. There's a lot that needs to be done um, before any of this is practically useful for people. And so a big part of making sure things are done well is having the right people involved. And you know, that, takes, um, that takes effort because you have to get to know different sorts of people, you know, um, involve them in the community building process. Um, and then more generally, there's the more immediate um, priorities like actually building the city. Um, so, so like taking a very like step-by-step -step approach to doing this. So let's talk about Nkwashi now. This is the first city that you are building uh, on, I believe it's 3,000 acres of land uh, from the family's farming business or acquired otherwise. Um, can, you, can you give an introduction to that for, for people who are totally unfamiliar? Sure. Um, so uh, over the last several years, I've been working on building Nkwashi. Um, like you mentioned, it's a 3,100 acre, uh, though strictly speaking, 2,700 acres of that is the development proper. Um, the first phase, which was not part of this 
um, master plan. Um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a group of four, I think, 85 acre plots that we used to create the liquidity to then move on and sort of execute this larger project. Um, we are building the city around the idea of it being a, a knowledge a knowledge hub, right? So it'll be anchored by a university as well as a talent accelerator and several schools. Uh, so the, the ambition here is to provide reasonably low cost, but high quality university education and, and, and um, non-accredited as well like skill building in the talent accelerator that results in people being able to uh, get international jobs through global remote work placement, um, but stay in the city, living there, working there. And so as you're turning up graduates each year, you're adding to your pool of people who are working in the city uh, and are earning um, you know, foreign currency or eventually Taji, uh, and therefore so like creating this economic uh, ecosystem there. Um, so that, that's the, the long and short of it. So what drove you to focus on building it as an educational hub? You could have tried to get a large company to build a, a headquarters there or something like that. Why was the education hub the most attractive way from your perspective to um, attract people and, and ultimately a, a self-fulfilling economy? Yeah. The reason for that was largely um, that is a little bit of a distance outside of the capital, so it's a half-hour drive. You know, you know, if you're driving slow, maybe 45 minutes to about 50 minutes, um, and so it's not really ideal uh, for building out corporate headquarters for people who might have to do a lot of day-to-day -day interface with their customers in the in the larger city, Lusaka, and so we had to build out a new economic anchor that wasn't reliant on day-to-day -day engagement with people who live in the city. And so university is great for that because there's a lot of precedent for it. Uh, we know something that works, sort of like becomes an economy unto itself. Um, so you end up with people who service the university, you've got landlords who emerge to service students, you've got staff of the university who end up living there, you've got people who sell goods and services to the staff. So, um, the success of places like Palo Alto, Cambridge, Oxford, uh, Grahamstown in South Africa, and many others, Guildford as well in the UK, um, suggested to us that this is something that is viable. Um, the question was what happens to your graduates, right? So if, if they're transient in the sense that come live there for four years and then they leave, uh, then you aren't really capturing a lot of the potential upside that could otherwise be created by um, establishing a sort of like network effect. And so if you are providing means of employment for them, uh, for which there's a lot of demand in Zambia because it's a small economy and if it's one where you have a large youth population and uh, a lot of population growth, but not necessarily a lot of new job opportunities being created, um, then that's a really, really strong competitive advantage. Uh, and, and so that, that compels people and incentivizes people to want to stick around. Um, and so that was the thinking there is like, you know, if we can create this economic system that's, that's, um, that's creating these jobs, then long-term that starts to actually build up both population density 
as well as economic activity. So I understand you're using ISAs. Uh, for those who don't know, those are income share agreements where basically people can uh, have their, their university experience and, and education financed um, by others in, in a way where they'll pay back those people lending them the money essentially um, over time as, as a percentage of their income post-graduation. Uh, is this right that that's something that you're using to help people um, go to university or something that you plan to use uh, once it's fully built out? And uh, how did you kind of arrive at, at this model as, as being one that, that would work well for you? Yeah, so it's not something we're doing just yet, but it's, it's something that we would like to do uh, eventually. And the motivation for that is this idea that um, you, you want to have the best potential pipe of students uh, passing through your university, right? And if there are significant binding constraints that prevent the most talented, but sometimes the most underprivileged kids from being able to uh, attend school at your university because they don't have the means, then you want to find ways of limiting those, those friction points. And ISA is a great way of doing that because what they do is they enable um, the, the potential learner to have access to the thing that they actually need, which is capital. Um, but they also enable investors who you know, want to earn yield to do so by forwarding capital to the student um, who then gains access to a high quality education, but then you know, uh, returns a capital with a multiple back to the investors um, post-graduation and you know, gaining employment. So that, that really um, uh, in, enables your, your demand funnel um, to you know, expand or be broader. And that's something that's net positive for us. It's also net positive for society in general. But it, it, it's another layer of complexity um, on an already complex um, project. And so it's not something that we've done, but it's something that's in our radar and that we want to do eventually. But first, we just want to actually launch the university, uh, start um, enrolling students, and then make that available to people um, once we've stabilized the, uh, the university. So speaking of the launch, where are you guys now in terms of progress on the university specifically? Uh, and how does Explorer School and, and Explorer Academy, how do those fit into the overall education picture uh, within Nkwashi? And then um, if they have reached more broadly, uh, how, how does it expect to scale as well? Yep. So we had to launch the university this year as an online only um, experience, uh, but then working with the local regulator, uh, there were a couple other things that, there were a few things that we had to conclude with them before we could do so. So the intention is to launch next year um, as online only initially. Um, and we've also started working on the university campus or building out the physical infrastructure to support the university at Ingwashi. Um, and we're hoping that you know, we can have this initial phase done within uh, 18 months of start, which was last month. So we're looking at sometime uh, in early 2022. Um, and so we could actually have physical school happening at Nkwashi, so pandemic allowing um, alongside the online experience. So we've already built the e-learning platform. Um, we launched Explorer Academy and Explorer School, um, for which we've had students already. Um, 
So it's so like again taking this bite-sized approach um, and sometimes facing delays. So beyond the education piece, which is obviously important and, and central to the thesis around building Inquashi successfully, um, what else is in store for Inquashi in terms of your plan and, and what else does has been done thus far in, in terms of progress? I know you mentioned it's it's slow and, and methodical, um, but would love to hear the vision. I know there's um, a couple of lakes and uh, plans for abundant places to go shopping and obviously residential areas. I would love to hear kind of the overall view. Yeah, so we finished a dam, we finished a park, uh, we've built out one suburb, you know, with, with streets in it, uh, built the main boulevard in and out of the estate. Um, and then we have several other streets and roads which we're still working on. Uh, they're usable, but they are not yet paved. So we're working on paving those uh, and building out another uh, about 15 kilometers of streets or so between next year and this year. Um, so it's been all like road building. Uh, we are extending grid um, throughout these phases that we've uh, opened up. So taking power to, uh, to the various uh, lots of land that uh, have been made available. Uh, water and sanitation, same thing as well. Um, so a lot of like traditional infra that we're building. So there's been a lot of that. Um, outside of that, in terms of like other plans we have, so we also intend to um, get started building the physical school. So the Explorer school has a, a physical presence as, as well as a, an online presence. Um, we build a restaurant um, in the park, uh, which we typically just use at the moment for uh, so like activities as and when we have them. Um, so we haven't turned it into a full-time experience just yet. Um, yeah, so that's what we're working on at the moment. Uh, and that's you know what our immediate plans are. We also have in our master plan allocation for things like um, the shopping centers and the hotel and among other things, Excuse me. And our intention is to also roll those out. Um, but that also requires that a larger population be resident at the, at the city first. Um, so we'll probably start off with, with more traditional high street style shopping in the neighborhoods that um, folks would have um, houses built in. Um, and then build out the, the larger shopping experiences later on. That's awesome. Uh, I admire the ambition. It's, it's a huge endeavor um, and you're just kind of taking it full steam ahead, but at the same time going slowly enough to um, hopefully put some of the right pieces in place in the right order and not have to do too much, um, you know, resetting and rebuilding along the way. Uh, we'll be curious to learn more about how you're financing the whole thing. So um, there's Frontier Capital Partners where you're a co-founder, like I mentioned earlier, investments um, and then you sold it sounded like 80 initial plots of land I think these are the ones that you did on kind of a five-year payment plan to help finance uh, some of the initial building of Nkwashi could you just talk about how um, some of the capital is coming in to build this vision out over time yeah so uh, the first tranche of capital was formed by 
subdividing 85 acre plots and then seven those in five year plans. So that created initial liquidity to master plan the, the concept um, and engage in the initial marketing thereof. And then what we've done is uh, we've been selling residential lots in, in phases. Um, and again, on, on payment plans that enable capital to be released each, each month, um, that is then used to build out the infra. So um, that enables us basically to sort of like cover the capital cost of building up each phase that we are marketing to the public. Um, and so like take this programmatic approach to, to achieving the master plan. So you know that each year these are the milestones that we need to achieve. And then you are able to then harvest cash flows from um, sales of land to, to finance those activities. More recently, um, as of last week, we, we launched a new way of enabling homeownership in Kwashi. And basically, instead of selling um, uh, absolute ownership of the land, what we're now doing is uh, providing long-term leases on the land. So we're basically acting a lot more like a traditional municipality where we are making available um, sections of the town uh, to the general public, and then people subscribe to various plots of land uh, and they gain the right to occupancy, right? So they, they can actually sell their plots to other people uh, should they elect to do so. They, you know, they can build on it. Um, and so the improvements are wholly theirs. And the business model for us is that we then charge a, a ground rent, which we are calling a, uh, a rate, um, which is effectively like a, a property tax of sorts uh, that enables us to then service that neighborhood so initially that's infrastructure, but then much more long-term that also includes things like garbage collection, um, maintenance of, of roads and street lighting and then management of the parks and all these various communal spaces and, and services that a city typically would provide to its residents. And so in a sense, what we're actually now doing is uh, uh, so like enabling residency as opposed to like selling land in the traditional sense. Um, and we found that that's been very, very warmly um, accepted by the local community. So our, our wait list is now something like 3,500 people. Um, and that's been achieved in about a week. Um, so you know, should that allow us to continue, I think um, we'll be growing that backlog of people who want to participate in this pretty rapidly. Yeah, it's funny. In preparing for this conversation, I, I took note of the fact that you guys had, I think at the time that I saw 2000 people on the wait list. So it's almost doubled since then. And I think that was maybe a tweet from just a few days ago, even. Um, so it's, it's cool to see the, the success and, and the warm reception that the new model has, has had thus far. Um, I understand you, you're involved closely with, with Mark Lauder from Charter Cities Institute. Uh, had him on the podcast previously as well and spoke a bit about Nkwashi in that conversation. Uh, how has Mark been instrumental in, in helping you think about some of this, these things as well? Yeah, Mark's been great in helping us think about these things because he, um, I think he, he brought a new perspective, right? So initially when we first started working on this project, we thought about it very much as a master plan community that is, uh, a functional satellite city. We didn't really think about ourselves being a, a long-term um, developer of cities. Uh, and we didn't really think a lot about the governance of, um, of these cities within the context of 
ensuring that we could build out uh, systems that would optimize for economic growth and stuff like that. So I think Mark really helped um, inform our thinking uh, and I guess also helped us be a little bit more ambitious. And so, you know, in that respect has been great. Um, he's also been really helpful with um, engaging with the local government authorities here in Zambia and trying to uh, encourage them to update their special economic zone um, policies and legislation so that they can allow for uh, something that will be much more similar in keeping with the charter city concept. Um, so that's been great. Uh, he's also been helpful in, in introducing us to um, loads of people who are enthusiastic about the space from around the world. So is that something where you expect, you mentioned the working with the government to work on new definitions of special economic zones and things like that. One of the core tenets of charter cities is to be able to experiment with new forms of governance and new bylaws in a way. Is this something that you expect, expect for Nkwashi and some of the other cities uh, that can be built in the future to be able to experiment with the government a little bit? Yeah, that's the intention. Um, so, you know, our thinking is that um, it, you know, the existing policies, whilst okay, um, don't really provide enough of a catalyst to actually attract foreign capital um, into these new cities, right? And, and so these enhancements that Mark's promoting would help achieve that. And also they'll be very general in the sense that anyone who applies for these, uh, this credential um, could provided the meet certain criteria, um, achieve them, right? And so um, it's, it's good for the rest of the country, but it could also be great for Nkwashi. And our intention is once this is done, that would uh, certainly be um, pursuing that. So last question. Um... You're very transparent across uh, all of the, the uh, companies and, and organizations that you've built and their online presence. You, you talk a lot about your values uh, and the master plan. I think you list a number of principles. Uh, two of those principles caught my attention and would just love to hear how they kind of, uh, kind of impact the way that you approach your day-to-day. Your -day. So the two that I took notice of was one, uh, you, you talk about, the importance of effort leverage and the other you said you don't need a stake in a single bite uh how do these kind of principles drive the core of, of who you are and, and how you attack your everyday um so i think about those things quite a bit uh so with respect to like not eating a stake in a single bite you know that's that speaks to um something i've so heard it a couple times in this conversation which is uh, slow and steady is probably better than you know, really rapid and, and disruptive, but, but you know, destructive also. Um, so there's a lot of learning that's involved in getting stuff like this done. Um, and being presumptuous generally isn't a great idea. So like being deliberate, deliberate and speaking to loads of people, um, learning, understanding, and then acting, um, I think is something that's of value, but also you know, the, the vision is big, the mission is big, uh, the costs are really high, the risks are also really high. And so taking these very big um, ideas, concepts and things, and so like 
breaking them down into smaller milestones or activities helps us grapple with them, right? So we can sort of like deal with the smaller things and then sort of like on a, as you add these smaller steps together, it, it becomes larger leaps uh, and a lot of um, progress. So that just, you know, really helps us execute. Um, and then with respect to like effort leverage, I think that's more of a function of time management. So there's a bunch of things that we could potentially be doing, spending our time on. Um, but to the extent that they only provide very marginal um, contribution towards achieving the broader vision, then it's, it's like the opportunity cost of pursuing those things is, is really high. So we'd rather focus our time, resources, and um, abilities on those things, which are, number one, really fundamentally at the core of enabling us to achieve our vision and our mission. Uh, and number two are uh, big enablers of, of, um, of those little steps that we mentioned, right? So to the extent that, uh, you know, something might not necessarily have big uplift in and of itself, but enables us to achieve more important smaller steps that are worth pursuing because those smaller steps are fundamental. Um, so that's generally how we think about things. I think that's a, a great perspective and principles that I certainly, um, maybe with a little bit different wording, consider very strongly myself. Um, I, think, I think they're great ways to uh, approach your day-to-day, -day, especially with, with a mission as, as large as the one that you're on. So uh, I want to wrap up there. Uh, Moya, I really appreciate you taking the time today. It's it awesome hearing your perspective on all of this and, and what you're building uh, from Nkwashi to Taji more broadly and, and your general master plan to advance African civilization. Uh, before we close out, I want to give you the ability to, to kind of share anything that you might not have gotten to uh, in our conversation today and tell people where they can learn more uh, about you and follow the progress of all this online. But thanks again for, uh, for making the time and sharing this perspective. And uh, I really look forward to following your, uh, your mission in the years to come. Well, thanks a lot for having me. And uh, it's been a great chat. Um, so with regards to, you know, anything else, um, yeah, one of the things I've found is, you know, building out a great team is, is definitely like a difficult thing to do um, in general, regardless of where you are in the world. Um, but here, I think that also tends to be uh, even truer, uh, largely because the, this is a little bit of an esoteric niche that we're involved in. Um, and, and so if there's anybody out there in the world that's, you know, keen to get involved um, either on the blockchain stuff or in the city building proper or on the education side. Uh, I'll be keen to hear from you. Um, I'm reachable on Twitter. Um, my handle is Mwiyas, so that's M-W-I-Y-A-S. Um, so yeah, I'm pretty responsive there. Um, yeah, thanks a lot for having me, Jake.